Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're going through the archives to play some of your favorite stories from the past few months. We'll kick things off with music. Day in and day out, we are constantly surrounded by it. We hear it while shopping at the grocery store, while working out at the gym, And of course, we hear it every time we queue up songs on our computer or smartphone or good old-fashioned radio. Now, in all those cases, we think of music more or less as entertainment, right? Even if it's just playing in the background. But for people with certain language or cognitive difficulties, music can be far more than that. It can actually be a tool that rewires the brain, helping treat such conditions as Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, traumatic brain injuries, and strokes. As music therapist Tracy Bowdish explains, many stroke patients have great difficulty with speech. They know exactly what they want to say, but they're not able to find the words to say it. So imagine you have a word on the tip of your tongue and you can't get it out. And imagine all of your words are that way. But with a practice known as neurologic music therapy, before long you could find those words by singing them. Because that stroke is in a very specific area of the brain, and because we use more of our brains when we sing than we do when we speak, often those people still retain the ability to sing. Tracy Bowdish works at the Sentara Music and Medicine Center in Norfolk, Virginia, one of the few such centers in the country. To get patients talking again, she starts with helpful everyday phrases. Like, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I need to get up. And uses music to make them stick. So let's say she's teaching a patient that first phrase. I'm hungry. She starts by making up a simple melody to go along with the words. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. She then hums that melody for her patient while tapping his hand to provide extra rhythmic cues. Once the patient starts humming along, Tracy adds in the words. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And once the patient starts singing those words, Tracy starts fading the music out. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Next comes the big test, whether the patient can find meaning in the phrase and use it in context. So when prompted with a question like, What would you say if you wanted something to eat? Ideally, he would reply, I'm hungry. Though at a recent session with 70-year-old Jim Bob Rodriguez, who suffered a stroke and has been working with Tracy Bowdish about a year now, What would you say if your stomach was growling? Tracy gets an unexpected reply. I want to eat. I want to eat, he says, beaming from his wheelchair. Tracy couldn't be more thrilled. That is fabulous. Huh? You know why that's so fabulous? Why? Because we practiced I'm hungry. (laughs) And you said I want to eat. (laughs) You know what that means? (laughs) That means you're using your own words and not my words. And that makes my day. Someone else whose day it makes is Jim Bob's wife of 40-plus years, Sandy. Jim Bob can't use the right side of his body, and he's hard of hearing, but Sandy says her husband has come a long way. When we brought him home from the rehab, nursing home, he was on a feeding tube. Uh, He couldn't do anything for himself. Sandy had heard how Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords used music therapy to regain speech after being shot in the head. 
So Sandy was hopeful when she heard about Tracy Bowdish at Sentara. One year later, not only is Jim Bob incorporating all the phrases he's learned in his sessions. He comes up with things like, ooh, you feel sweaty or you feel hot or, you know, and it always takes us aback because we're not expecting it. Though there is one phrase Sandy has come to expect and appreciate more than words can say. Every night he tells me he loves me and he does it very meaningfully. So that's always very special to know that. Dr. Kamal Shamali founded the Sentara Music and Medicine Center in 2010. The neurologist says because music is so commonplace in our world. You know, music is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It doesn't always get its due as a viable tool for helping people like Jim Bob Rodriguez. Instead, it's often overlooked in favor of other more well-known therapies. We have examples especially those stroke patients with a rehabilitation of language, where we were able to uh, bring back language after four weeks, let's say, of music therapy, when 20 weeks of speech therapy did not bring back the language. And yet, most insurance companies still don't reimburse music therapy. So many hospitals have yet to implement it. Why would physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy be reimbursed without any problems, and music therapy, which is sometimes more effective, not be reimbursed, you know, doesn't make sense. That's why the center charges just $40 for each session of neurologic music therapy. Sentara, which runs a network of nonprofit hospitals in the region, incurs the remainder of the cost, which makes it easier for patients like Jim Bob Rodriguez to come in on a regular basis. He's had about 40 sessions with Tracy Bowdish now, and in honor of his upcoming anniversary with Sandy. This one's a hard one. I want to try it, though. Today, they're working on a new phrase. First, Tracy hums it. (laughs) Then they hum it together. (laughs) And once Jim Bob can hum it by himself. (laughs) Very good. It's time for the words. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. After Jim Bob sings the phrase on his own, Happy anniversary. Tracy fades out the music. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. That was very, very good. <laughs> the next step is to add in a very special phrase Jim Bob has already learned. I love you, Sandy. Happy anniversary. Very good. We're going to work our way up to that. You can see Tracy Bowdish and Jim Bob Rodriguez working together on our website, metroconnection.org. You can also hear them singing one of Jim Bob's favorite songs. And neurologic music therapy is just one of the services offered at the Sentara Music and Medicine Center. You can see a video of Dr. Shamali discussing the music medicine and performance medicine programs. Again, that's metroconnection.org. Our next story, which first aired in June, is about a problem with no easy solution. 
In recent months, more than 750 women with young children have sought help for addiction from D.C.'s Addiction Prevention and Recovery Administration. That's the city agency that links people with treatment. Jacob Benston tells us why recovery can be especially challenging for parents. You have a child, you're doing what you can to be a good parent, but you also have an addiction to alcohol, heroin, whatever it is. You realize you need treatment, but you think, What's going to happen to my son? This is a question Lynette Daniels faced 18 years ago. On June 20th of 1997. She'd been struggling for years with alcoholism, but now she had to choose between going to the residential treatment program her counselor said she needed and staying together with her 7-year-old son. Lynette had tried to pull her life together on her own, but on that Saturday morning in 1997, she realized, You need some help, Lynette. You've tried it for how many years to do it by yourself? It started out a bad day. For her back then, a bad day meant total hopelessness. Whether it's raining, snowing, whether the sun is out, whether it's hot or cold, it's um, a belief that this is a hopeless day. But that day she found a phone book and a phone number for APRA. She was referred to a detox program at D.C. General. A counselor recommended a longer residential treatment program, but she'd have to be separated from her son. That was uh, one of the most difficult decisions that I had to make. The counselor asked, couldn't her son stay with family, her aunt and uncle? They won't keep him. They're not going to have to, you know, they have their own life. They're retired. The counselor said, why don't you just ask? And I did. And it seemed like it would be one of the most difficult calls for me to make. But I called and my aunt and uncle said, if it will help you get yourself together. The transitional housing she went into was in an old row house on 14th and Harvard in northwest D.C., run by the group Samaritan Inns. We're running short of pillars. Recently, workers were getting ready to reopen the house. It will now welcome women in recovery and their children for up to six months. Those, those are doubles, and that, oh, that goes in the end. Oh, the idea is that women like Lynette won't have to make that tough choice and more will choose recovery. Judy Ashburn is the director of residential treatment at Samaritan Inns. The need is so great because the mother will try to manage her addiction on her own, and usually it just gets worse and worse, so that by the time the children are really grown, then her, her addiction has grown to the point that it's much more difficult to treat later in life. And if women can bring their children into treatment, more families will stay together. And, of course, we want to keep families together as much as possible. Brenda Donald is D.C.'s Deputy Mayor for Health and Human Services. She says in D.C., some 40 percent of children in foster care are there because of substance abuse in the family. And so if a family, a mom typically has an addiction, if she can be supported towards recovery with her addiction and keep her children with her in a safe and nurturing environment such as this place, then the chances are that that family will stay together, mom will be more motivated to continue with her drug treatment, and the kids will get to continue bonding with her. An analogy that I like to use is being on an airplane. Babette Wise is the director of the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Program at Georgetown Hospital. They always talk about putting the oxygen mask on the parents first and then take care of your children. You have to be alive and well to be there. She says programs that keep kids with their parents can remove a barrier to getting treatment. Because a lot of times mothers will use their children 
as an excuse for not getting the help that they need. They feel that their priority is their children. And I will tell them that anything that they put in front of their sobriety, they could lose. They need to get well. That has to be first. The programs are funded by Medicaid and money from the city. Expensive, yes, but cheaper in the long run. So says Norma Finkelstein, a pioneer in this sort of treatment. She started one of the first programs in the country specifically for women and women with children back in the mid-1970s. She now runs the Institute for Health and Recovery in Massachusetts. Of course, it's more expensive because you have children on site, but it's nowhere near as expensive as basically Children being in foster care, prevention of future child abuse and neglect, prevention of kids growing up to be future alcoholics and drug addicts. And she says research on these programs shows women stay in treatment longer, are less likely to relapse, and become better parents. It can help break the generational cycle of addiction. For Lynette Daniels, getting treatment was good for her and her son. I was fortunate enough that he wasn't placed in a foster care or home with people that he didn't know. She recently celebrated 18 years clean and sober. She's still close with her son. He's been at every anniversary I've celebrated except one. He's been on the journey and is my biggest supporter. She now works for the organization that helped her. She's the director of transitional living at Samaritan Inns. Good afternoon to everyone. Thank you all so much. She helped cut the ribbon on the new program for women and children. The honors, we have a big scissors. We chopped them up just before and here go. There we go. These two new programs together will serve about 30 families at a time for stays of two to six months. But is that enough? In D.C., there are about 1,000 homeless families, and roughly one-third of people who are homeless struggle with substance abuse. You can do the math. Here's Judy Ashburn again with Samaritan Inns. What I'm hoping is that what we've done here can be replicated all over the city because it's just such a small piece of the need. I'm Jacob Fenston. Time for a break, but when we get back, an artist who started dabbling in digital as an octogenarian. Everybody else was less than 21. I didn't even know how to turn a computer on or off. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, we're revisiting some of your favorite stories from the past few months. In July, we met a woman who has remained young at heart by creating art. Marilee Shapiro-Asher lives at Chevy Chase House, a retirement home in northwest D.C. But unlike most units in the building, Marilee's abode is especially large. See, this is two apartments put together. And while its second bathroom has the usual toilet, sink, and bathtub... I covered the bathtub. <laughs> the tub is covered with small pieces of sculpture. The box one is fabricated. The others are bronze. I think it's a great idea to turn your bathroom into a gallery. Yeah. <laughs> but it needs to be more gallery and less bathroom. 
You're on your way. Marilee created these sculptures along with numerous other artworks in her home, like etchings, drawings, and... I've got stuff at the bin, prints, and... Can we flip through a couple? Sure. Photographs. That's one of those early ones. And that's 2003. Pardon me? So that's 2003. You consider that very early? 2003. And I think it was 2000 when I went to Corcoran for the first... And started. Indeed, Marilee took her first digital art class at the Corcoran School of Art in the year 2000. But here's the thing. At the time, she was 88 years old. Everybody else was less than 21. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know how to turn a computer on or off. Now, at the tender age of 102, Marilee Shapiro-Asher is tackling Photoshop, manipulating the images she takes on her Nikon digital camera. Marilee's career as an artist spans 80-some years, and goes back to her native Chicago, where she grew up just two blocks from where President and Mrs. Obama's house stands today. She covers it all in her new autobiography, Dancing in the Wonder for 102 Years. As we sit in her spacious living room overlooking Connecticut Avenue, she explains how she came up with that title. In the book, a few pages in, is the song, Dancing in the Dark. And this is a line from the song. It goes like, uh, dancing in the dark till the tune ends. We're dancing in the dark and it soon ends. We're waltzing in the wonder of why we're here. Time hurries by. We're here and gone. That was a very popular song in... I would say the 1930s, which I always remembered, and it just seemed like that's what we all are doing. In 1943, you moved here to Washington, D.C. Can you talk about what brought about that move, why you relocated? World War II. My husband was a lawyer. Bernie Shapiro was his name. And he came to Washington as a lawyer for the Board of Economic Warfare. I was pregnant. There was no housing or any medical care assured in Washington. So I stayed in Chicago till the baby came. And then when he was three months, in April of 43, I came to Washington. And at first I was very homesick. I was boiling diapers and bottles in a third floor apartment without air conditioning. It was rough. But anyway, I came to love Washington, and my husband was seduced immediately to stay here. He didn't ever want to go back to Chicago. So here we are. Well, I want to talk about your art. It seems like it's it's run in your family. Your mother started painting at age 79. Your sister Eleanor was quite an artist, too, and you have some of her pieces here in your in your house. How did you get your start? I don't remember the motivation. I remember that after I was married, I had either gone to school or worked as an emergency uh, social worker during the Depression, and I had nothing to do, and I went out and bought some clay and began to play with it. And once I began, you know, I just had found it. That was it. And in terms of your artistic life in D.C., It was around 1960 that you and some fellow artists decided you were going to start your own gallery. And it was in the coach house belonging to what was then the Phillips Gallery. And today, it would be located in the parking lot of the Cosmos Club near DuPont Circle. 
What inspired this group of you to found the Associated Artists Gallery? My friend Dorothy Goldberg, who was Arthur Goldberg's wife, who subsequently became Secretary of Labor under Kennedy, she had been sharing the space of the Phillips Coach House with some other painters. Dorothy was able to get the lease for herself, and she and I decided to invite a couple of other artists in a cooperative gallery. But talk about press. We were in the style section every day because of the connection to the Kennedys. We also gave a show to the Barnett Aden Gallery, which was the only and first black gallery in Washington. We also gave a show to the paintings of Henry Miller, the author, and that created quite a stir because there were some very bad words incorporated in the paintings. One more question. On November 17th, you're going to be 103 years old, and I'm sure everyone asks you this. I'm sure you're sick of hearing this question, but what is your secret? How can we all live life so fully after a century on Earth? Well, I think most important is your body, exercise. Even today, I can go from a condition of almost stupor into being alive by getting up and taking a walk. Beyond that, I think that art, for me, has been very, very good because there's something that you want to do. There's some reason to get up in the morning. I believe that it contributes to health and longevity. That was 102-year-old artist Marilee Shapiro-Asher. Her new autobiography, Dancing in the Wonder for 102 Years, is out now. You can see a photo of Marilee working in her home studio and hear her reading her book's rather distinctive dedication on our website, metroconnection.org. Dancing in the dark Till the tune ends we're Dancing in the dark And it soon ends we're Waltzing in the wonder of why we're here. For more than 50 years now here on WAMU, once a week the troubles of the modern world have melted away as sounds from the golden age of radio take over the airwaves. Now then, if you have any problems that you face in the week to come, forget about them. Or any problems that you had in the week just passed, they're over and done with. Right now, we're ready to get back and relax and listen to those wonderful memories from The Big Broadcast. That's host Ed Walker, who's been with the program The Big Broadcast for the past 25 years. But longtime Washingtonians know he's been a prominent on-air voice for much longer than that. In fact, in 1950, as a student, Ed helped found a little college radio station at American University with the call letters WAMU. This weekend marks the end of Ed's radio career. 
He recently announced he's fighting cancer, and after a quarter century, this Sunday will be his final big broadcast. Ed's longtime engineer, Toby Schreiner, brings us this behind-the-scenes glimpse at producing the show. Okay, you want to start? All Take right. some level from you. Hi, everybody. This is Ed Walker telling you what's coming up on the big broadcast this week. Looking good. Okay. Stand by for music. My name's Toby Schreiner. I'm the chief broadcast technician here at WAMU. I've been with the radio station for almost 25 years, and I've been working with Ed Walker for pretty much all of that, uh, minus maybe three or four months. So I've, I've pretty much been with Ed the entire time. Check one, two. Why can I hear myself? I hear you. Okay, one, two. That's weird. We get the programs that we use on the big broadcast from a gentleman named Neil Ellis. Neil's a longtime broadcaster. He was an engineer at NPR, but he also is an old-time radio buff. He uh, has an amazing collection. He and Ed basically are the ones that discuss what's going to be used. Neil helps us out with finding the right kind of flow for uh, when to air which episode of the various shows like Dragnet and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. As far as the process between Ed and I, we have a routine. Pretty much every Tuesday, I pick him up at his home in Rockville, and we get in about 9, 9.30, sit down, and we will go over the shows that we've selected. <laughs> Thank you, Story Lady, for that hair-raising tale. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. There's, I want to see if we... Yeah, that's a good one. Lady. Yeah. Those are clear, and they're very yeah, clean. they're clean as a whistle. We'll talk about pieces of the programs that n- might need to be removed, uh, whether it be... Um, some of these shows have, have things that are in pretty bad taste by today's standards, so we'll be looking for those, and we also need to work on the timing. Well, the others are pretty long. Are they? I mean, uh, Gildersleeve is about 29.30. Okay, so if everything after Gunsmoke is... Uh, what are we doing in the last hour? Of course, uh, Eddie has been blind since birth. He's great at improvising. He pretty much ad-libbed everything. It's not like he had a script written out in its entirety. He had notes, sort of the Braille equivalent of index cards, I guess you could say. And he would just work off that because between those and his own personal knowledge and memory of listening to these shows when he was a child, he was able to pull it off beautifully. He does, from time to time, get dates wrong. I'll correct him on those. Ed actually uh, slipped and fell in the snow a couple of years ago. And he didn't injure himself terribly, but he did get frostbite in his fingers, which made it really difficult for him to read his own Braille. And that's when I had to step up my game a little bit and help him with things like dates. Program 5, no, program 500? 509? 589. While reading the Braille, he would have... Everything correct except maybe one number. We get Johnny Dollar number 589 from May 18, 1958. The Ghost to Ghost ghost Matter. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Hi, Johnny. Uh, This is Art Price. This final show 
coming up on Sunday. He wasn't feeling terribly well when we recorded it. He was okay. He was joking. Um, His sense of humor is still very much intact. But you'll notice when you hear the program that he's talking a little bit slower. And I wouldn't want people to worry about that too much because Ed wouldn't want them to worry about it. The only thing we did differently was that instead of paying any kind of attention to the time of year, which right now we would probably be doing something related to the World Series or the playoffs in baseball, but on this particular uh, final show, these are all of Ed's personal favorite programs. We recorded him in the hospital, and um, yes, it was very difficult to record And especially when it was time to sign the show off, which is to say when it was time to record the closing in the hospital room, that was pretty tough. But I'm glad we have it, and I hope the people that listen to it enjoy it, because that's what Ed wants. He'll be listening. He's always got the radio on. That's going to do it for the big broadcast for this week, and we hope you enjoyed what you heard. My name is Ed Walker, thanking you all for listening. Thanks to Neil Ellis and Toby Schreiner for doing their good job, of course. And remember, it isn't Sunday evening if we don't have Eddie Cantor to sing. I love to spend each Sunday with you. Good night, everybody. friend of friend, I'm sorry it's through. Ed Walker's final big broadcast is Sunday night at 7. This story was produced by Jacob Fenston. I hope you feel that way too. Let's make a date. In a minute, what if you could bypass Beltway traffic and get from D.C. to Baltimore in just 15 minutes. I mean, people say it's impossible to get it done. Well, things are only impossible till somebody does it. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. We'll kick off this part of the show with a shave and a haircut with a series we launched this year, Clips. It's our exploration of D.C.'s barbershops in partnership with Elevation D.C., a weekly online magazine about what's next for the city. This time on Clips, we return to a barbershop we visited in July for a special treat, especially if you tend to tune to WAMU weekdays at noon. That is when you'll hear the familiar saxophone riff and, of course, the voice. From WAMU at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show. Every other Friday, after our beloved talk show host has left his chair in the WAMU studio, you'll find him in a different chair completely. A barber chair at J&C Barbershop, owned by John Minor. Should I wait till your face is done getting shaved before I make you talk? No, you can. I can talk. (laughs) I mostly listen, John. No, you don't. (laughs) As you maybe can tell, Kojo and John have known each other a while now, about 25 years. When I started coming to the barbershop, John was the youngest barber. Are you saying that he's no longer the youngest barber? <laughs> Situation is completely reversed now. It's like the exact opposite. 
John opened J&C on Georgia Avenue Northwest in 1989 or 1990, years before the Petworth Metro Station was built just up the street. He was in his 30s and had been working for a barber named Corrine Young. When the building changed ownership, Corrine lost the shop and asked John to find a space they could run together. She lent John cash to rent a spot on Georgia Avenue, and voila, J&C was born. So why J&C, you may ask? I used her name as Kareem and put the seal on the window. Now, as for how Kojo Namdi got there, well, he says it had everything to do with the woman behind that C. I started coming to this barbershop because somebody told me that there was a woman named Miss Young who was very good at cutting hair. So I came to Miss Young. She was an older woman. And I had two young sons, twins, and so we all came to the barbershop at the same time, and Miss Young cut all of our hair. When I, when I opened in this area, I was the only one in this block. And it was four black churches in this block, little neighborhood churches, little, um, I guess, you know, tap the tambourine churches. Um, since that time, um, they've gotten hair salons, grocery stores, full-service restaurants. And there are all different ethnic groups in this block, El Salvadorian, Mexican, Black, African, they're all diversified in this block. There are a lot more condos, higher-rise buildings than there used to be. However, there are also a lot more drinking and eating establishments, places where people can hang out. One of the attractions, I suspect, with this neighborhood is because it's so close to a metro stop, and so people tend to build around metro stops. But once people move in, then stores, restaurants, etc., follow them. And there obviously is going to be some tension. Gentrification always brings a level of tension with it. And this area is now in the middle of gentrification and all of the accompanying tensions. Right now, they said in parking spaces across the street for $35,000. That was unheard of. They built a condominium over there. And it was unheard of to have a parking space to cost $35,000. It used to be easy to park here. But now that you have more businesses, more traffic, you get more people. We have more walk-ins now because the neighborhood has more traffic, obviously. Before we had people who lived in the neighborhood, but they're gone, some come back, so we have a lot more walk-ins. I worry about how long they'll be able to hold on because as property values go up, as you see they're renovating in this barbershop right now, and I say to John, what happens if the landlord at some point decides, oh, I want to sell just after you've done all this renovation? He says, well, I hope that won't happen. But these are the things you tend to worry about because there are cultural aspects of places like this that cause this neighborhood and have caused this neighborhood to be vibrant for a long time. And even as the neighborhood changes, you want those cultural aspects to remain because in a lot of respects, they identify the neighborhoods. You find bonds between people, people meet each other here, or I had a couple that got married in here, met each other in here, and got married. And they're still married to this day. You get to know the inner stories about people. For some reason, they get relaxed when they get their hair cut. They would let their guard down, and they feel comfortable, and they start telling you stories. I've heard about broken marriages, cheating spouses, um, changing sexual identities. I've heard all the stories. They'll tell you everything that's on their mind. So this is what they do. There are barbershops that are probably closer to my neighborhood than this one is, but when you find a barbershop and it works for you, 
it doesn't matter how far away you move. Once you're in the same city, you're going to that same barbershop because the barbershop you come to for more than the barbers. It's the environment in the barbershop that you like. You don't want to have to go and break in a whole new barbershop. You've already gotten this one broken in. This is where you're going to stay. <laughs> that was WAMU's Kojo Namdi and barber John Miner at JNC Barbershop in Parkview. You can see John Miner giving a shave and a haircut and Kojo Namdi getting one on our website. We also have a link to Elevation DC's write-up of JNC. Find it all at metroconnection.org. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. Your haircut is as short as mine. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. Your haircut is as short as mine. Ask people around our region, and they'll no doubt tell you one of the biggest headaches about living here is getting around. Whether it's brutal traffic on the Beltway or Metro's daily breakdowns and delays, commuting can be tough. But picture this, traveling from downtown Washington to Baltimore in 15 minutes, or from D.C. to BWI in eight minutes. It may sound like science fiction, but in other parts of the world, high-speed rail has been a reality for years. In July, transportation reporter Martin DeCaro told us about one company's vision to bring Japanese train technology to Maryland. The sound overwhelms your ears as you stand on the platform. The steel wheels of a marked train riding the steel tracks on the way to D.C., carrying commuters like Ted Niblock. He makes the Baltimore to Washington trip twice a week. Rail travel in the U.S. is pathetic. We don't invest enough. He says his commute takes about 45 minutes. To shorten that trip to 15 minutes, it would take leaving the 19th century steel-on-steel technology behind and making the leap to maglev. We should have it. We're never going to get it they won't spend the money. It's hard to blame them for that attitude. There's no high-speed rail of any kind in the United States, let alone maglev. Oh, what's maglev? It's short for magnetic levitation. Magnets lift and propel the train. There's no friction. And Japan's maglev just broke its own speed record, hitting 374 miles an hour on a test track. And that's what 374 miles an hour sounded like blowing by reporters trying to snap photos of a blur. Even watching it on YouTube is awesome. Imagine riding one. Maryland Transportation Secretary Pete Ron did. The experience of riding on superconducting maglev was something that greatly exceeded my expectations. Ron traveled to Japan with Governor Larry Hogan, where they rode the fastest train in the world. Their ride traveled a mere 314 miles an hour. By comparison, Amtrak's fastest trains average about 80 miles an hour between D.C. and New York. It has to resemble the sense that people had when they rode on a 707 Boeing for the first time, going from prop planes to a jet. The governor called it incredible, and he and Ron want to bring that technology to Maryland. It was amazing to me that this accelerated to 314 miles an hour in practically no time at all, and the ride was so smooth that you could have easily poured yourself a cup of coffee while you were standing in the middle of the aisle. So how does Maryland plan to build a maglev? Andy Dentamaro is the maglev man at the Maryland Department of Transportation. First and foremost, I think it's important to, to recognize that this is a private sector-led project. Meaning no state dollars are on the line. 
Maryland is applying for a $28 million federal grant to figure out how to build and where to place a 40-mile maglev line. The study could take three or four years. It's frustrating to me to sort of see America fall further and further behind the rest of the world. Wayne Rogers is the chief executive at the Northeast Maglev. His company's been pursuing Maglev without success since 2010. He says the country can't afford to dismiss his idea any longer. I think we really have to understand that infrastructure is key to our economy. Our prosperity in the future is really tied to what is our infrastructure like. What are some of the misconceptions people have about Maglev? That it's not real today. It's real in only three countries, Japan, China, and South Korea. The Central Japan Railway is using profits from its bullet train to build out its maglev line. Rogers says the private sector would take the lead in Maryland, too, with the support of a $5 billion loan from the Bank of Japan. For most of the American people, we don't even really know how far behind on some of these issues we've fallen. Japan's first bullet train, Shinkansen in Japanese, opened in 1964. I wish we had started this high-speed rail 50 years ago. Rogers is right. Maglev is not fantasy, but that doesn't mean it'll be easy to import to America. He estimates it'll take about 10 years and at least $10 billion just to connect D.C. and Baltimore, mostly through underground tunnels. To reach New York, about another 15 to 20 years. But Maglev proponents say the challenge is not technological. It's a political issue. Kevin Coates is a Maglev consultant who's traveled many times to China and Japan. He says there's an important reason why Japan is investing in Maglev instead of another steel-on-steel railroad. Maintenance. And all you have to do is look at YouTube video, NHK video of high-speed rail maintenance in Japan. As a wheel rolls along a track, the surface is gradually worn away, changing its shape. And you would be shocked at how much effort goes into keeping those trains in operation. The Japanese of all the countries in the world know how much it costs to keep high-speed trains running. Maglev trains have one moving part, the train. If you look at the maintenance facility of, say, Metro or a bus terminal, uh, there's a lot of activity, a lot of grease, a lot of noise, a lot of machines running. And in the Shanghai maintenance facility, it's like the Maytag repairman shop. There was hardly anything going on because this is an electronic transportation system. In Japan, the owners of the oldest bullet train in the world are shifting to maglev. If the operators of that line, with 50 years experience, are deciding to go with maglev for the next Shinkansen, then maybe we ought to be paying attention to that decision. The Hogan administration is. In fact, Maryland is currently the only state pursuing federal money to study maglev. If it's ever built, the obvious question is who would ride it, and that question is harder to answer once you know fares could be $1 to $2 per mile. Round trip D.C. to Baltimore, at least 80 bucks. I'm Martin DeCaro. going to turn now to a topic that's not for tender ears, so if you have children nearby, you might want to turn down the radio for the next few minutes. The topic is BDSM, shorthand for bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, sadism and masochism. The publication of Fifty Shades of Grey and the movie that followed put BDSM, or kink as many people call it, in the spotlight. 
But the BDSM community in D.C. was thriving long before E.L. James penned her blockbuster book. In fact, several researchers have ranked D.C. as one of the kinkiest places in the nation. In May, Kristen Sorensen told us why the nation's capital could also be called the nation's kink capital. And please note some of the names in this story have been changed to allow interviewees to speak candidly. Michael's red brick home in Virginia seems perfectly ordinary. There's a manicured front yard and a fluffy black cat napping in the window. Hey, hey, how you doing? Michael is in his 50s and works a 9-to-5 job in IT. But the basement in his seemingly ordinary house is anything but. Okay, there are a couple rooms here. This is the main one. It's um, about 40 feet long, about 10 feet wide. This is Michael's dungeon. The uh, walls are painted one shade of gray. They're hung with uh, framed uh, pictures of uh, fetish and sadoerotic artwork. There's also a vintage medical table and a bondage chair. It has pegs that make it easy to wind rope around someone's body. So what exactly goes on in this space? When I'm walking up to somebody at a party for the first time, I've never met them before, never seen them play or anything else, then we're definitely going to do some talking about what kinds of things you like. The first thing many kinksters point out is that the real world of BDSM play is not Fifty Shades of Grey. It's meant to be completely consensual, so before play can begin, there is a lot of communication about expectations, desires, and safe words used to stop activity at any time. This is a uh, plastic whip, lots of little tendrils of uh, blue plastic, and all of them hitting together, and I, ow, it really does burn. <laughs> Michael is clearly in his element down here. But 20 years ago, when Michael first moved to D.C., he was struggling with some of his feelings, specifically his desire to tie women up. I was raised to respect women, so I grew up believing there was something terribly wrong with me because of my interest in and attraction to SM. I thought I was the only one, so I tried to hide it and what I liked and who I really was. But then Michael saw an ad for the Black Rose, a well-known BDSM organization in D.C. I walked in and thought, where are all the Playboy bunnies and big hairy-chested dudes in leather pants? These are just normal people. Michael said he felt a huge sense of relief. I thought, maybe I'm not a sick person after all. Maybe this is just a matter of taste or of preference. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're a good person or a bad person. Julie Fennell, a professor of sociology at Gallaudet University, says many people in the BDSM subculture can relate to that. You have this cumulative feeling of guilt and shame that get built up. And I think the goal of the BDSM subculture, I mean, if there was only one goal, is really to help people find a way to make sense of these desires and try to form healthy relationships in spite of, and more importantly, because of those desires. Fennell has studied the BDSM community for years, but her interest in the topic isn't just academic. I am the only person who has researched the scene as an out kinkster myself. In 2012, Fennell did a study on the BDSM subculture in the mid-Atlantic area. Unsurprisingly, many kinksters say that sex is their main motivation, but for others, it's more about an intense feeling of excitement, a spiritual experience, or making friends. But to outsiders, it can all seem a little intense, even dark. For a long time, psychologists 
and society as a whole. They just want to believe that people are kinky because they're messed up, right? Like, there's an assumption that is built in that kinky people are this way because something bad happened to them. For years, the American Psychiatric Association categorized people who participated in BDSM as mentally ill. It really had a chilling effect on everyone who was kinky. Susan Wright is the founder of the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. It really kept us isolated. It keeps people from coming out because there is such a stigma. She created the foundation in 1997 to advocate for consenting adults with sexual interests outside the mainstream. And after more than a decade, her hard work paid off. In 2010, the Psychiatric Association officially changed their stance. So they came right out and said, kinky people are perfectly mentally healthy. In the D.C. region, there are more than 10,000 people who practice BDSM. That's according to a study last year examining social network use. So why is it so popular in our nation's capital? Politics is about power and how you wield that power. And in a lot of ways, so is kinky sex. It's about the power exchange. So it's really no wonder to me that people in D.C. are into BDSM. For some, BDSM is a lifestyle. But for others, it's also a way to make a living. Anna is a professional dominatrix, or pro-dom. She says kink is so popular in D.C. because it's a way for the city's type A personalities to blow off some steam. I am something they can never have. And that's something that's very arousing to them and stimulating to be told, no. No. Anna sees about five clients a week, but never for sex. She has each client fill out a form so she understands what they are interested in. They also establish a safe word. And she has rules. They come right in and they know that they always are to show up in a suit, dressed very nicely. This is not a sweatpants and sneaker event. Anna often sees individuals, and sometimes couples, who come to her wanting to learn how to spice things up. And they can take those things and just really put a little play into their life and not be afraid of it and not feel dirty and wrong. Susan Wright from the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom says there are millions of people having kinky sex. She says that for many, the BDSM lifestyle is more like a sexual orientation than a choice. People's sexual desires are as individual as a fingerprint. I'm Kristen Sorensen. Want to see photos of that dungeon Kristen visited? You can satisfy your curiosity at metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We list all of our music at metroconnection.org, where you can also find links to our free weekly podcast and to our Twitter and Facebook pages so we can stay in touch with you all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.